Right. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. And as you do that, I want to let you know about a couple of things going on. Uh, today, we had the privilege uh, between the two services of baptizing six people. And uh, it was a celebratory time. And um, as, as we always talk about, we encourage you to come early, stay late. And if you're able to come early and stay late, you're going to be able to fellowship together and greet one another and welcome one another and pray with one another and bear one another's burdens and show your care and compassion for one another and do all those things that God has commanded us to do. So uh, for those of you that showed up a little bit early, um, you know that that was a, just such a rich time. And the Lord was definitely honored and glorified. Um, I want to let you know that we have uh, women's ministry is having their Christmas gathering and they still have tickets available and so you can actually go into the Portico area and uh, buy tickets and uh, tickets are also on sale online and uh, so ladies I want to encourage you to uh, join in on that. We have a program here at Golden Hills called uh, Christmas Angel and what we do is uh, we identify families in the church that are in need during this uh, Christmas season, maybe need some more resources and just help. And we, so we come alongside of them in various ways. If you happen to know a family or maybe even just because of various circumstances, you find yourself in that position where you need the body of Christ, we're here to help. Uh, we're here to serve and love however we can. And so if you would make us aware of that, um, there's different ways to do that. But the best is to contact Cher Richardson. And uh, she's usually uh, in that hallway over there. And you cannot miss her because she has pink hair. So we told her, hey, we're making this announcement. You need to, uh, you know, do something to identify yourself. And so she went and got pink. No, I'm just kidding. She always rocks the pink hair. So uh, talk to her and she'll be more than happy to answer any questions you have. Um, if you're new to our church, I do want to welcome you. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of preaching today, and I just have the privilege of serving the church in various capacities. Um, and if you're not regularly a part of our church, you, you probably don't get an email every Thursday. Every Thursday, we send out an email that has the various resources for Sunday morning. You can get the bulletin, the sermon outline. You can uh, request prayer. You can do a number of things. Uh, one of the things that we do is we provide the bulletin electronically so you can have it on your phone, your iPad, or whatever you do. Uh, but also we have some that we print out. And so if you're one of those tactile people where you have to physically have something, uh, be also because you're, I don't know, anxious and so you're like, got to do something, um, we have these available uh, if you want to get them and they're in the information booth for you there. We're entering into a season called Advent. And for literally, uh, not only centuries, but millennia, uh, the church has celebrated this time as a time to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. And what we mean is by, uh, we are preparing our hearts to remember how Christ came in his incarnation during Christmas. And so for four weeks, beginning next week, we're going to have uh, a time of Advent where we're going to look at the themes of uh, faith and hope, love, joy, and peace. And we're going to prepare our hearts and minds for the Christmas season. We will have a Christmas Eve service, two of them. Uh, they will again be outside and it'll be a candlelight uh, service. Um, the choir will be there singing and many of us will be there shivering. And it'll be a fantastic time. Uh, if you came last year, you know how impactful uh, that time was. Singing Silent Night at the Stroke of Midnight. Um, there's not much like it. And so I want to invite you to that. We also want to let you know that we are giving out free copies of this book written by Pastor John Piper. It's called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. And for uh, the first 400-ish or 450 families, we're going to be giving away this book for you to read. It's a daily Advent reading, which means beginning December 1st all the way through December 25th, we encourage you to take this book to read it together as a family. Um, around the dinner table or before bed or something like that and then have a, prayerful, a time of prayer and thanksgiving uh, for what you're able to read through this. So it's a great resource and we'll be giving these out next week, okay? So next week we'll, be have, we'll have these made available to you all. All right, by now you've hopefully uh, made your way to the book of Ephesians chapter five. You know, uh, as a parent, one of the things that I'm learning more and more, especially as we parent teenagers, is it's imperative for me as a parent to help my kids know the difference between needs and wants. And uh, we as adults need to be reminded of that from time to time as well. Needs and wants are quite different, though many of our wants feel as though they're needs, and many of the needs we treat as mere wants. 
And what I mean by that is if you want something, it means you could actually go without and you'll be all right. Uh, A need is something that actually you can't go without. It's something you need. (laughs) And so thinking about this, let me ask this question. Is the local church a need or a want? Let me ask it this way. Is the local church something that you can't do without? Or is it something that you can do without? You see, if it's a want, merely a want, it means that you can do without it. It means that you could basically live a perfectly good Christian life without the local church and everything's hunky-dory and we're all good. However, if the local church is a need, that means you cannot do without. It's indispensable. I like that word, indispensable. You cannot dispense with it. You cannot just do without. And as I've mentioned before, we Protestants, which means non-Catholics, we tend to think in what is called essential minimalism, which means basically this. We ask ourselves quite often, all right, what is the bare minimum I need to know or do in order to get to heaven? I just, just give me the, the bare minimum. That, that's it. And then what we figure out is whatever is not on that list of the bare minimum that is needed in order to get to heaven, we just discount as being unimportant. And so when we think about the local church, ask ourselves the question, is the local church necessary in order to get to heaven? Which means must I be a part of it, attend it or whatever in order to get to heaven? And the answer is no. But just because the local church is not needed in order to get to heaven does not mean that it is unimportant. This way of thinking is tragically shallow and will produce a whole host of problems if we think that the local church is merely a want that you can go without because it really doesn't get you to heaven, so it's not that big a deal. But if we think that the church is indeed necessary in terms of it being vital or essential or crucial, or indispensable, that means it can't be discarded. It can't be ignored. It can't be done away with. So what I want to do is look into Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27 and verses 29 to 30, and I want to see and help you see that the church is indeed indispensable. It's a need, not a want. And I want to show that in three ways. I want to show that the church is indeed indispensable because of Christ's saving love for us, because of Christ's sanctifying love for us, and because of Christ's sustaining love for us. And so that's how the sermon will kind of continue from here. Christ loves us so much that he saves us, he sanctifies us, and he sustains us, and us being the church. So let's begin verse 25. I know, by the way, that this section is about husbands and wives. But I'm going to ask you to kindly look past that. I know wives are like, I can't wait for this sermon. (laughs) I acknowledge that husbands ought to love their wives. And and what I want to focus on is the, the rest of this text. And it begins with, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. Because... We are members of his body. I want to begin with verse 25. You notice that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. That term gave himself up for her is an obvious reference to his own death. And what that means is Jesus so loved the church that he was willing, joyfully so, to go to a cross, to die there, to shed his blood for his church. And so what we can do is conclude that Jesus' love for his bride, the church, 
is so deep and so relentless, so impassioned, that he is not only willing, but joyfully willing to lay down his life on behalf of her. And we know that when Christ gave himself up for the church and dying for the church and shedding his blood for the church, he does so in order to save the church. And so what we can conclude is this, that Jesus' love for the church is so deep and profound, it is actually the source of salvation. In fact, we read this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I want you to notice it uh, towards the beginning of verse 4 where God is described as being rich in mercy, but you see this word because. Because, we don't think about that word very often, but it means this is caused be, or the source of this is this. In other words, the source of salvation is caused by love. It is the love of God that causes salvation. And so we understand we are saved by grace, which is caused by love. I can summarize it like this. Undeserved salvation because of God's unrelenting love. We who do not deserve anything but wrath and punishment, God gives us because of his love salvation. It's breathtaking. In fact, God has loved us so deeply. It's, Romans 5 says that he shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, brothers and sisters, we did not compel God to love us. We did nothing worthy of forcing his hand and making him look upon us with loving graciousness. Rather, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God. We wanted nothing to do with him. We don't want anything. We don't have him budging into our lives. And it was in that moment, seeing us at our worst, knowing the wickedness in our own heart and the evil thoughts in our own mind, that God has displayed his relentless love by saying, I want you anyway, and I'm coming for you. And that's why we read in 1 John 4 that this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Many of us think that we can act in a certain way and we can earn God's affections, but that is not true. God is the one who makes the first move. It is God who wins us to himself. It is God who loves relentlessly and passionately. It is God who sends Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. What in the world does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Jared Wilson wrote a book called Gospel Deeps. He uh, is an author and speaker. He's a, um, a resident uh, professor. And uh, he was here for our Initiate Conference a year and a half ago. And he writes this. There is a blood debt that is owed. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And until that price is paid, condemnation remains. And we are all under the just wrath of God. We cannot make this payment because we are morally bankrupt, every last one of us. And so at the cross, Jesus makes his payment with the riches of himself, supplying his life to take the debt upon himself and to appease the wrath of God. The result is what theologians call propitiation. That is, God is made favorable towards us forever. Because of Jesus Christ, God is always for us who are his church. Now, the one thing I didn't tell you about this sermon was as I preach it, 
What I'm doing is summarizing the last 11 weeks of our series in the church. And what I just talked about is the summary of week one. What is the church? The church is the blood-bought people of God whom God has loved so deeply that he sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue them through his life, death, and resurrection. And so we as the church experience the saving love of Christ. He saved us because he loves us. Another element I want to show is this about the saving love of Christ is that it's through the church that this saving love is revealed. You see, the saving love of Christ is not meant to be kept a secret. It's meant to be shared to a desperate world. And God's plan A for how that is to be done is through the church. That is the bride of Christ. The message of Christ's saving love comes to the world primarily through the church. Here's how Paul puts it. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then check out verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't want you to miss verse 10 because we so easily just skate over this text and we don't probably think about the implications of this. But God set apart the apostle Paul to preach the unsearchable riches of grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ to all the nations. And now Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus And he writes to other churches to prepare them and to help them understand, don't you realize that God intends to reach the desperate world with the saving message of the love of God in the person of Christ and he's doing it through the church. Not through parachurch. Through the church. God intends to reach the nations with the unsearchable riches of Christ's saving love for us. But how exactly? How exactly does the church reach the world? Firstly, the saving love of Christ is made known through gospel words. Right. (laughs) He gets it. Here's how Paul put it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That is, you'll be the church. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your socioeconomics, your race, ethnicity, doesn't matter any of that stuff. If you call on the name of the Lord, he will save you. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Here's our conclusion. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. You see, the church is meant to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its gatherings and all of its goings. That is, those who are sent to preach, whether it's across oceans or whether it's across your street, when you are sent, you are sent to make known the saving love of Jesus Christ. And the feet that you have in preaching that good news, beautiful. Because no one's going to get into heaven without hearing about Christ. And so it's through the church that we send. But it's also the church that does the sending. 
And so just in case you think, well, I'm off the hook, I'm not, I'm not going to be a missionary, you have to realize it's not just those who are sent around the world, it's those who are sent out in the world. That's every one of us. As C.H. Spurgeon said, every Christian is a, either a missionary or an imposter. And brothers and sisters, that is earnestly true. We who are sent are called to preach. Those who are sending are no less called to preach because nobody gets saved apart from the word of God. Namely, more specifically, the word of Christ. And so, through the church, the saving love is revealed to the world through gospel words. But also, the saving love of Jesus Christ is revealed through the church in gospel works. What I mean by that is loving one another. But not just any way you feel like loving one another. It's loving one another as Christ has loved you specifically. Here's how Jesus put it. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Now watch this. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And the manner in which Jesus has loved us, as we know, he gave himself for us, he sacrificed for us, it's a costly love. It's not a convenience love. It's not a love which is based on merit in the sense that I'm not going to love them because they just treated me nasty. Knock it off. Love them. Whether they deserve it or not, that is the mark of a true Christian. We love. As Christ has loved us, you imagine if Jesus says, I only love you if you you live up to my standards. We're all toast. But instead, Jesus looks at us in our waywardness and our wickedness and says, I love you anyway. And I will have you as my own. In a world where people are desperate to hear the words, I love you, I want you, I accept you, there's no sweeter sound, there's no more powerful words, and there's no greater sense of love than when God's people love not just within words, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3, 16. And so, we love, or we we make the saving love of Jesus Christ known in the world with our gospel words, but our gospel works, that is, through how we love them. And thirdly, it is through gospel power, through gospel power. You see, the saving love of Christ will be made known through the power of the gospel to transform people's lives, to bring them from death to life. Here's how Romans 1 puts it. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, it what? The gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now look at these prepositions. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the gospel is the power of God to save you. But it's also the power of God to create faith. It's the power of God to help you sustain faith. And it's the power of God to help you live by faith. And so if you graduate from the gospel, you you basically surrender all of this power. We can never get beyond the gospel. I hear people all the time, Phil, you're talking about the gospel all the time, move on to deeper things. No deeper thing. No deeper thing than the majestic God becoming a human being, living for us, dying for us, rising for us, coming back for us in order for us to be with him forever. No deeper thing in the world. Brothers and sisters, we don't move beyond the gospel. We plunge the depths of it. You see, there are things in life, when you hear them, they will change your life forever. I'll give you a couple easy examples to identify in life. When a doctor says to you, I'm sorry to say, 
you have cancer. You don't leave that meeting unaffected. When an employer says to you, I'm sorry, we have to let you go, you don't leave unaffected. When someone says, I love you too, you don't leave unaffected. When you hear the doctor say, congratulations, it's a boy, you don't leave unaffected. And likewise, when you hear the gospel, when you hear the good news of the saving love of God in sending his son to rescue us, that you are loved with a love which no human words can possibly adequately explain, that God pursues you, wants you as his own, knows every evil and sick and twisted secret you're trying to keep from everybody else, but he sees it all. And he still says, I want that one. And I want that one. And I want that one. Come, and I will give you rest. You will not leave unaffected. The gospel is powerful. It could be summarized simply like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, Jesus was sent into the world because of love in order to save sinners from the wrath of God and to do so by grace through faith. Some people think that we're all born like neutral and then you hear about Jesus and you either say yes and you get heaven or you say no and you go to hell. But verse 18 is very clear. We're all born already headed to hell. That's why it says if you don't believe you're already condemned. Instead, Jesus was sent into the world, not to condemn the world because it's already condemned, but Jesus was sent into the world to save it. And so in Jesus Christ, what we hear is, why would you die? Why? Why would you face the wrath of God? Why not be saved? Why not experience the love of God? Why not be forgiven of your sins? Why not be free from your guilt? Why not be delivered from shame? Why not live life as God intended you to live it? Why would you die instead? It makes no sense. Believe. Come to Jesus and believe. For if you will repent, turning from your sins, and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Week three and week four. So let me ask this question. Can we do without the saving love of Christ, experience in our own hearts and the salvation we have received in Jesus, can we do without that in the local church? And can we do without making it known through the local church with our gospel words, our gospel works, and the gospel power? Is that, eh, whatever, we can do without it. No. No, Jesus loved the church, gave himself for the church, and now commands the church to go out and make that love known through what you preach, through how you live, and through a transformed life. That doesn't sound dispensable to me. That sounds urgently indispensable. Secondly is the sanctifying love of Christ. And we'll go back to verse 25 of Ephesians 5. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and then there's a purpose statement here. Verse 26. It's so that. Here's a purpose. Why did Jesus give himself up for us? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. In other words, the reason why Jesus saves us is in order to sanctify us. 
So many people think of salvation as only the rescue from something and not the deliverance to something. God has freed you from the wrath of God, but he has directed you towards a life in God. It's both. And that process of living the life God is granting to us is called sanctification. It is the ongoing work of God in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus in our character. Or in other words, in our holiness. The purpose of our salvation is sanctification. In other words, the purpose why God saved you is so you could be holy like Jesus. Here's how Hebrews 10 puts it. For by a single offering, that is the offering of Jesus Christ, God has perfected, past tense, perfected for all time. If you are a fan of the Sandlot, forever. (laughs) Just look at that. Because of Jesus, God has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Present progressive tense. People ask sometimes, Pastor Phil, is there any way I can know for sure I'm saved? And my answer is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, and I ask the question, are you increasing in your holiness? Are you being sanctified? Would people around you look at your life and say, you're becoming more like Jesus? And if the answer is no, then you have every reason in the world to doubt whether or not you've been perfected. Because it says God has perfected who? Those who are being sanctified. Those who are being made holy are the ones God has saved. Sanctification is holiness. Sanctification is Christ-likeness. And it is God's will for us. Here's how Paul put it. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I know so many people who are trying to discern the will of God. (laughs) And they go to fortune cookies and fortune tellers and they, I don't know what is going It's not hard. At base level, here's what God wants for you. Holiness. If you just start there, a whole bunch of other issues will resolve themselves. One of the reasons why the world is as chaotic and crazy as it is, is because there's a lack of Holiness. And it's so easy for us to be like, yeah, look at the world. But brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why your life is so chaotic and disordered is because of a lack of holiness. You have a thousand issues in your life that many of which would be resolved if we simply pursued holiness. That's the will of God for you. And I love this. Because in this text right here, you see as Pastor Josh McCullers preached in week four, I think it was, of our series about a discipling church, how a discipling church helps to sanctify its people, how it disciples its people through knowledge, experience, and coaching. Do you remember this? Knowledge, experience, and coaching. And so we look at the knowledge part. Look at verse two. You know what instructions we gave you. That's knowledge. And then we see experience. He says, you know how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing. Do so more and more. So there's experience lived out. And then there's coaching. Verse 1, we ask you and urge you in the Lord. This is what a discipling church looks like. It's giving knowledge to its people, giving experience to its people and coaching them along the way. And as that happens, the people will be made more holy through God's word and spirit, as we'll talk about soon. 
But once again, let me show you that it is God's will to sanctify you. And let me say it differently. The purpose of our salvation is not merely to be rescued from the wrath of God, but it is also to be blessed with the life of God. Paul says this, God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not either one, whatever you're into, both. And this isn't because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, it's God's purpose and God's grace to save us and also to sanctify us through a discipling church that gives knowledge, experience, and coaching. Now, at this time, I want to make sure we're not getting this thing twisted. Because sometimes when you hear me talk about holiness, I get emails every once in a while that's like, do you mean that when we are holy and obedient that God will love us more? No. What I'm saying is, in Jesus Christ... You have the infinite love of God thrust upon you, poured over you, washed over you, and it is unrelenting, and there is no drying up of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. And because of that, because God's affections are over you and in you through the Holy Spirit and covering you, the proper response is, oh, what great love you have for me. I'm going to go. And be holy as you called me to be holy. Not to earn your affections, but because I already have your affections forever. It changes everything. I know there's a lot of high school students in here and college students. Let me give you one quick example. When I was in college, I saw this really pretty girl in my Spanish class. And uh, we had a mutual friend, and so I walked in the Spanish class, and I saw my mutual friend sitting next to this pretty girl, and there was one empty seat. And I remember looking in the classroom and thinking, thank you, Lord. This is good. Showering blessings upon me. So I sit down next to her, introduce myself. Over time, we began to go from Spanish class to attending chapel. Uh, and sometimes we'd have breakfast together. And so I asked her one day, I said, hey, uh, where do you park at? Because I never see you walking around campus. She's like, oh, I park in the back parking lot. Now, I parked by the baseball field because that's where I spend most of my time. So I, I, I mm-hmm, okay, I know where you park now. <laughs> so I got tickets to a Giants-Dodgers game. Uh, they were free. And uh, somebody was like, hey, I got two tickets. You want to go? And I was like, all right. You going to bring anyone? I don't know. So the pretty girl in my Spanish class, she told me that she didn't really like baseball, which should have been a deal breaker. (laughs) But my powers of persuasion are stronger than most. (laughs) So I asked her, would you be interested in coming to a Dodgers-Giants game with me? I was full expecting her to say, no, I'm not into that. And she goes, yeah, I'd love to. So I said, why? Why would you want to go? You don't even like baseball. And she said, it's not necessarily the thing that you do that matters. It's who you do it with. And I was like, got her. (laughs) Game, set, match. Once I heard those words, I knew for sure that she liked me. I knew for sure that I had her affections. And from that day forward, I started to park in the back parking lot. Because, brothers and sisters, once you know that your feelings are not dependent upon other people loving you, but instead you come to hear first that somebody likes you, that changes. So so think about it like this. High school students especially, listen, college students. You find out some guy or girl doesn't like you, you're heartbroken. You find out that they do like you. You have two choices, run or draw near. But it changes you. You cannot be unaffected. And likewise, when we have the affections of God in the person of Jesus Christ, you cannot be unaffected. You either run to him or run away from him. But you're definitely not 
indifferent. And when you know that you have someone's affections, it changes the way you live your life. She likes me? I'm going to the back parking lot. I got to see more of her. And as you guys probably know the story, I proposed to that pretty girl in my Spanish class at Hume Lake Christian Camp, and we've been married for, oh shoot. Sixteen years. So, Giants-Dodgers games. Who knew? Now, let me ask this question. How is Jesus going to go about ensuring that we become more holy? So, if he saves us from the wrath of God and he saves us to the life in God, is there anything that he does to make sure that we actually progress in our sanctification? Has he done anything? Or does he just go, all right, I saved you, kid. Off you go. He doesn't leave us as orphans. So what does he do? And here would be my answer. Here's what Jesus does. He has organized his church, his local church, to be led by godly shepherds who will feed his sheep so that the church will grow in its sanctification. And we've already read these, but let me refer back to them. Where the Apostle Peter says, I exhort the elders among you in the local church as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. Pastors, elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see, the godly, biblically qualified elders and pastors are called to shepherd the people of God through oversight, and that oversight is a tenderness and a carefulness, as we read here. The Apostle Paul talking to the Ephesian elders in the shores of Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, what does that mean to be an overseer, to have oversight over others? It's to care for the church of God. And what's significant about the church of God? It's those people whom he has obtained with his own blood. Sadly, there are far too many pastors out there who don't understand the blood earnestness of the church There are so many pastors out there who just want to get into a big church so that way they can expand their platform, so that way they can get more likes and more followers, they can get invited to conferences, they can write books and have a huge following. And so what they're doing is using their church to platform themselves because it's not a care for the church that they're worried about, it's a care for themselves and their own ego. Do we not understand that the church is the precious people whom God has purchased by the blood of his own son. And so I beg pastors all the time, brothers, brothers, please, these are not your people. They're God's people. He bought them and he's entrusted them to you. You're merely a steward or custodian of them. Don't screw it up. And I take that so seriously. And in response to the church, obey your leaders and submit to them because they're watching over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I tremble at that. And then it says, but let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I read an article one time that encouraged church members, don't be the church member that causes your pastor to groan. Oh, here they come. This past year and a half, I've had more moments of groaning than joy, to be honest. It's not because of all of you, but some of you, for sure. (laughs) Because honestly, it just causes me to groan from time to time where it's like, you're really okay with bearing false witness about your brother or sister in the Lord? Like, you're cool with that? You're okay with lying? You think for political gain that it's okay to gossip and slander? 
and countless other examples. And so for us pastors and elders, it's been a fight for joy in this season. And uh, it's not just our church. I was on a, a call with some other pastors most recently and just watching tears and saying it's so hard. LifeWay Research recently said that it's almost one in three pastors have contemplated quitting because it's so hard. So brothers and sisters, I'm not really all that interested in ideological uniformity in our church. I'm all about gospel unity. And I think we as a church need to focus our attention on things that are eternal, not fleeting. Christ is risen. And who's in the Oval Office or whatever is inconsequential because Christ is risen. All right. I lost my place. Ah, let's go back to verse 27 of Ephesians 5. So the purpose of salvation is sanctification. And now I want to show you that there's a purpose even for your sanctification. And it says in verse 27, the reason why you are sanctified is so that God might present the church to himself in splendor. Or maybe Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the description of a bride preparing herself for her groom. And the whole point of us being sanctified, the whole point of us becoming more and more holy is that we would become the radiant, glorious, majestic, blameless, guiltless, spotless, wrinkle-free bride of Christ. So that when he sees us, there's nothing but a smile on his face and we reciprocate that. Having prepared ourselves for this moment to see Jesus face to face, there you are. What an amazing thought to one day be presented at a, as a spotless bride who is betrothed to her husband that there would be great rejoicing in the unshakable, never-ending love between Christ and his church. <laughs> It's reminiscent of this marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Let us, the church, rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is for, that's a foretaste of heaven. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And what is that? The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, we are the bride of Christ and we are called to make ourselves ready. And how do we make ourselves ready? By clothing ourselves with righteous deeds. You may not know this or not, but I was married in this sanctuary. I sat, I stood right here. And uh, through those back doors is where my wife came down the aisle. And I remember being here so nervous. I was sweating. Ooh, man, it was bad. <laughs> and I'm just like shaking. And the guy who, who did our wedding, Chris, he was just like, don't lock your knees. I'm like, no problem. <laughs> They're shaking enough. I'm good. And then in a moment, Carla Adams sang. And then the doors and as you know, there's glass, and you can't see real well outside. You're blinded. Like, oh. But I just see the silhouette of my father-in-law, Will Blue, and my soon-to-be bride. And they were like angelic. So like, whoa, okay. This is amazing. And about halfway down, finally, I could make out her face. And I lost it. There she is. Spotless. Radiant. And she's mine. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, don't you realize that this is just a simple foretaste of what awaits us? One day, 
Jesus will stand there and we will walk towards him and see his face. <laughs> oh, what a day. So the church is those who are sanctified and who are called to be saints together. Watch this. The church in Corinth, look at this. The Apostle Paul's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. This is a local church. This isn't the universal church. And he says of these folks gathered in this place like Golden Hills Community Church. He says, you are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And not only that, but you are called to be saints, which is another way of saying sanctified. You're called to be saints individually, together. You're always meant to be together. The bride of Christ is an entity. You're not the church as an individual. You're a part of the church as an individual. But we together are the saints. We together are the sanctified. We together are the local church. And how is this local church made ready? We go back to verse 26 and it says, by the washing of water with the word. By the washing of water with the word. That is, we're going to be washed. We're going to be made clean. We're going to be washed away of our impurities. That reminds us of this text in Titus 3, that the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That is Jesus. And Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so how it works is this. When you hear of the good news of God's saving love for you in Christ Jesus and you respond with faith, you are washed anew through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, you are given a new heart, radically transformed, and now given this new life in order for you to live towards holiness in preparation for the great day in which you will be presented as the spotless bride of the Lamb of God. Unbelievable. This washing of regeneration, it says, is with the word in verse 26 of Ephesians 5. And it happens through the Holy Spirit. And that is because, brothers and sisters, this word of God, the principal author of the word of God is the Holy Spirit. And it just makes sense, therefore, that the same Holy Spirit, who is the principal author of this book, would also wash us anew alongside of this book. Not in contradiction to this book or not in exception to this book. It is with this book. So if we want to be made new in Christ, if we want to grow in sanctification, it will be by both the Word of God and the Spirit of God and never one or the other because they work conjointly so, brothers and sisters, I beg of you, get in the book. And as you get into the book, prayerfully ransack this scripture and ask that God would open your eyes that you may behold wonderful truths in his word, just as David prayed. And then sit back and watch the wonders. <laughs> Because God's word is always associated with holiness or sanctification. Here's how Jesus prayed for the church. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And back to Paul's last words with the Ephesian elders before he was going to die. His parting words included these. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, the gospel. And what's so amazing about that? It's able to build you up and give you the inheritance along with all those who are sanctified. The Word of God sanctifies you and the Word of God prepares you and builds you up for that great day when you are presented before our great Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit uses the Word of grace, the gospel, to build us up to wash us, to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to prepare us to be a pure spotless bride on her wedding day. And why? Because he loves us. So let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. Can we do without the sanctifying work of God through the ministry of the word and spirit 
by biblically qualified leaders in an organized local church? Can we do without that? I don't think so. By the way, that was a summary of, verse, of a week five through seven of our series. And lastly, let's go to the sustaining love of Christ, verses 29 and 30 of Ephesians 5. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Jesus nourishes us and cherishes us because we are members of his body. And therefore, the church, the local church, is an indispensable thing in our lives as Christians because of the sustaining love of Christ for the church. And here's what I mean. As the church is properly ordered, it will grow and build itself up in love. A properly ordered church has shepherd teachers who equip the saints for the work of the ministry and saints who are being equipped for the work of the ministry. Here's Ephesians 4. We've quoted this so many times. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see, a healthy, properly ordered church is one in which there are biblically qualified leaders whom God has appointed to do the equipping. And the saints are the ones who come to be equipped in order to do the work of the ministry, which is building up the body of Christ. Now, a improperly ordered church is where the pastors and leaders are not equipping the saints but perhaps entertaining them. And where the saints are not being equipped, where they're just coming to consume. And what I mean by consumption is simply this. Many of us, brothers and sisters, and you probably should do some heart searching if this is you, true of you, but some of us just envision the church being an optional thing that we attend, and we attend it as frequently as we find the religious goods and services it provides to be beneficial to us. If we find that there's not much at the church that we necessarily like or entertained by or whatever, our consumption motives will say, eh, I'm good, I'm gonna go somewhere else. They have a better praise band and much shorter sermons. (laughs) Somebody recently sent me a letter And they said, we have bad news for you. We're having to leave the church. And so I called them and I said, why are you leaving Golden Hills? And no joke. It was like, eh, we're just not like, we don't leave excited. And I said, well, uh, we have a guy in our church, one of our members, Alan Payton. Many of you know Alan. He sent me an email where I can rent monkeys. Because last week I said, what do you want, a juggling monkey? Well, that, are you not entertained? So at least I know where to get entertainment. But brothers and sisters, the church is not profoundly about consumption. It's not about providing religious goods and services that you can passively just receive. And then like a customer of any other, you know, like customer of, of services, you can just like, eh, if you like the service, you can leave. And it's not like that. My question is, are you being equipped? And if you're being equipped, are you actually doing the work of the ministry? And of course, the work of the ministry is the one another's. Are we loving each other? Are we caring for one another? Are we bearing one another's burdens? Are we praying for one another? Serving one another? This means, brothers and sisters, that let's go to verse 15. We are to speak the truth in love so we can grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look at verse 12, it says to equip. And look at verse 16, the second line down from the bottom, which it is equipped. So let me say it this way. When the pastor's elders are properly equipping the saints and the saints are properly being equipped and then exercising the work of the ministry, that means that the church is now equipped and is working properly. And what is the result? 
the body will grow in love. Do you see it? That was week 10 in our series. And so the true church, brothers and sisters, is one that engages in the pure preaching of the gospel and makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments. And here's what I mean. Because we're talking about the sustaining love of God for his church. Remember he says he's going to nourish and cherish the church because we're members of his own body. I'm going to go back to an old document called the Belgic Confession. It was a confession written in 1561 for all Protestants. That is non-Catholics. And here's what it says in Article 33. We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace towards us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He's added these to the word of the gospel to better represent to our external senses both what he has enabled us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. For there are invisible signs and seals of something internal and invisible by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they're not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ himself, without whom they would be nothing. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments that Christ, has, Christ our Master has ordained for us, and they are these, only two the sacrament of baptism and holy supper of Jesus Christ. In other words, how does Jesus nourish and cherish his body? It's through the right preaching of the gospel, through baptism in the Lord's Supper. That is to say, God takes care of us as we gather together as the local church to witness and affirm baptisms like we did an hour or so ago. And as we join together, as we will do in two weeks, to eat and drink as the Lord commanded us. That's how he nourishes us. That's how he cherishes us. And that's how he grows us. And lastly, let me say this. Out of the riches of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, he makes promises to us to nourish us, to cherish us, so that we will know without a, without a doubt that he will be with us always to the very end. You see, we read this in 1 Corinthians 4 where the Apostle Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ is confirmed among you so that you're lacking, not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at this, verse 8. This Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. One day we will see Jesus as he really is. And in that day we will be presented to him guiltless and spotless and blameless. And until that day comes, verse 8 is true. God will keep you to the end. How do we know that? Verse 9, God is faithful. By his promises, we say yes and amen. Because God is not a liar. Let every man be proven a liar, but God is not a liar. He will come through for us. Just as we see this promise here, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. One day you will stand before him. And he guarantees it. And one of the most stirring sections in all of Scripture that shows us the sustaining love of Christ for his church is in Romans 8. Not that one, this one. So what should we say to these things? If God is for us, the church, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Oh, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! None of it. Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sustaining love of God for his church is breathtaking. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I got you to the end. (laughs) And so let me ask this question, brothers and sisters. Can we do without the sustaining love of Christ in the local church through gathering on the Lord's day to welcome one another, pray together, sing together, hear the word of God together, give one another, uh, give to one another's needs, baptize and eat and drink the Lord's supper together? Can we just do away with that? No, I don't think so. Because, brothers and sisters, as we gather together, God promises to pour out his sustaining love for us. And as we grow together, God promises to pour out his sanctifying love for us. And as we go into all the world, God promises to spread his saving love to all the world. And so one day, eventually, we're going to change our worship, grow, serve stuff on the wall to we as a church, Golden Hills, we gather, grow, and go for God's glory and our joy. Because we gather since God sustains. We grow because God sanctifies. And we go because God saves. And we don't go as cowards. And we don't go with our tail between our legs. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For the gates of hell shall not prevail. So brothers and sisters, let's address one another in singing as we close. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for how you saved us by the reconciling love of Christ and that he willingly and joyfully went to a Roman cross to pay for our sins and purchase for us forgiveness forevermore. We thank you, God, that he has risen from the dead. And as such, he grants to us life So that we can not only be saved from your wrath, but now we can live in your life. Granting us the Holy Spirit. God, you are renewing us from the inside out. And you are making us more and more like Jesus. Through the local church. And God, we thank you. That you will sustain us. You will nourish us. And you will never leave us. Because Christ has won. And in him, we are triumphant. From the beginning of the ages, you called us to yourself. And to the end of the ages, you will have us for yourself. And for that reason, we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.